0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Thursday afternoon, so I'm pretty sure there's enough time for most of the questions to come in, so let's just jump in and see what we got. First up, Baby Vin staring at Massive Dwayne. I just saw the movie in the theater, actually. (laughs) They said, what's the best way to clean up the signal an SNES puts out? They have HD retrovision cables going through an OSSC, which works great on their TV directly, but their HDMI matrix hates it and won't accept the signal at all. If they run it through their tink 2X Pro, the Matrix takes it in fine. If anything, this might be the push they need to grab a tink 5X when the next batch is up. So, um that's an interesting situation. So very cool that your TV accepts the OSSC directly. Uh, If you wanted to work in your current setup, you could obviously unplug and replug or even get a one by two manual switch for that. Uh, So you should be able to switch it going into your TV without affecting anything else. But none of that's automatic, of course. So if you wanted to grab the RetroTank 5X and you run it in triple buffer mode, it should work perfectly through everything. And that does add about a frame of lag. However, because your TV is compatible, you might be able to do something like power on everything and get your game started, um, then switch your matrix you know, to the correct thing. So it's going to your TV. Maybe the other output's going to your capture card. And once everything's running then switch the retro tank 5x to frame lock mode which is just a couple of milliseconds of lag so think of it as zero pretty much um and in that scenario you probably would work fine and have no lag but You could have a scenario in which the matrix switch drops the signal because it doesn't know what it is anymore, uh, and in which case you would just have to leave it in triple buffer mode if you wanted a fully automated system. Now, most people cannot tell the difference between one frame of lag and no frames of lag, so you probably would have a perfectly good solution for that. But with the latest um, 5X update, you could get with the SNES identical quality to the OSSC and have some of those extra features. So if you were thinking about upgrading anyway, I would definitely do it because, um, you know, it's a chance that everything's going to be automated, but uh, even if it's not the worst possible thing is you could just have a tiny bit of lag. Less than the Framemeister, but more than the OSSC, I guess is a better way to put it. So yeah, I would give it a shot, and I believe the 5Xs are going up for sale this Saturday. So definitely grab one of those if you were considering it. Next from Yepo, they said, Your recurrent reminders that recaps need to be done have them thinking about looking through their consoles. They have an Atari 2600, a Vectrex, a slim PS2, and an NES. What would I consider a good worder to do these, from easiest to most difficult? And how would I proceed about gathering the parts? Are there any European sources they could use that sell full sets for each consoles or some other way to prevent ordering and possibly installing the wrong stuff? Last, they don't want to replace any original parts unless they have to. So how do they make the choice between keep and replace? So, Um, that's kind of an interesting scenario. I was just talking with Voltar about this the other day and we slightly disagreed, um, but I'll give my answer and then I'll kind of give his feedback and and hopefully I interpreted it right. But out of those, I would do the Atari 2600 first because it's the easiest. There's barely anything and all the parts are very big. So you should be able to just take your time and do it. I, the Vectrix is not easy. So I would really think about that before you did it, but that's one that I've heard a lot of people say that recapping it and especially checking out leaked caps and the weird boards, uh, because, you know, those are older style boards. So I've seen ones that were um, in very humid environments that like it was weird and bubbling up, but everything still worked. So, you know, I would just kind of do that next, not because it's easier, but just because it might really need it. A slim PS2? Uh, I don't know if you're going to need that and an NES. So the thing about the NES, I personally have not seen a lot of caps go bad on the motherboard. I'm sure it happens. Uh, I just can only talk about my personal experience. But in the RF box, I've seen that big cap leak all the time. And that is by far the hardest one to change on the NES. So that's one of these things where you know you could consider that um, probably worthy to do, but that's not easy at all. And at that point, removing that RF box altogether and then replacing it with one of the newer ones that's out there might be a better replacement depending on your setup. I know you wanted to keep original parts, so that's just something to consider. Um any European sources that sell full sets? Uh, I don't know of any, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. I could just be forgetting. That happens all the time where I say, I don't know. And then a friend of mine who I talk to all the time messages me like, hey, dude, you know, I have these for sale at mine. <laughs> so, so, sorry if I missed that one. But I just, I'm so used to getting everything from console five because we're both in the US. They arrive immediately and they're all good quality caps. Um, and lastly, how do you make the choice between keep and replace? So the other reason I brought up that extra RF box in the NES was to answer that part of it, and that when you're talking about keeping parts, in my very strong opinion, capacitors don't count as that. If you have anything that's dried out or leaking get rid of it, put a brand new one in and throw it out. If you want to have it look original, make sure you replace surface mount with surface mount, through hole with through hole, etc. cetera. But um, that's not anything I would consider original. That'd be like saying, oh, I have, you know, a 69 Camaro with the original oil. That's terrifying. No, 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 <laughs> change that right away. So, uh, but the replace part, that's something about the RF box. If you want a, a stock look and you want to know that it's your original NES, Um, then yeah, I would take the time to very carefully take all of that stuff apart and replace the capacitors and that, but make sure to clean it as well because I've seen most of them just start leaking, and that'll eventually corrode the board away to the point where you have to replace. You won't have the choice. Um, The only other conversation I've had with Voltar about this is I am under the mentality of if I'm personally going to be doing something like refurbishing a full console, doing an RGB mod, uh, you know, swapping out a part that is known to go bad, and there aren't a million capacitors, it's my opinion that I would say, why don't I just do that so I never have to open it again? And it's also my opinion that when I send more complicated stuff out to my friends to mod for me, in the case of something like... A PlayStation 1, you know, I want the PS1 digital in that, and I want the X station installed, and you should definitely replace the capacitors and the power supply. But it's also my opinion that I I would say, hey, you already have this thing open, Just replace all the caps on the motherboard anyway, because you're doing everything else. I don't ever want to open this console up again. Let's just be done with it. And I think Zach felt like in a lot of those scenarios, you never needed to replace the capacitors on the motherboard, only the power supply. So hopefully he'll have a video out soon explaining his thoughts on it. He could be right. I could be right. We could both be wrong and right at the same time. It could just be a matter of opinion, but that's definitely my stance on it. And unless somebody convinces me differently, I would definitely keep it that way. Way. And I did, I have changed my opinions. I mean, I, I change my opinions every day, but regarding capacitors, I originally kind of thought all right, well, when I go into a consumer TV, I'm going to replace all of the caps in it because I'm, I'm here. I don't want to figure out which ones are for the video signal. Let me just take my time and do it all and not have to think about it. But when it comes to stuff like RGB monitors and BVMs, um, Jose and Steve had both talked to me about this and about how shotgun recapping every single capacitor might not be a good move because there are some caps that you can't get the same quality that they used to offer for them because the main people that were making them were selling them to CRT CRT manufacturers. So you can't really get... as good so in that case you would you would kind of be better off taking off the original measuring it making sure the capacitance is still good and putting it back if you really wanted to be diligent about that so I could be wrong it could be one of these things where I'm going to learn more and change my opinion but it's definitely on the console not RGB monitor side of things that's definitely my stance is if you're going to be spending your time refurbishing it I would just do it anyway uh, but once again who knows maybe when Voltar's video comes out I'll change my mind Rasta Jedi wants to know if it's okay to cheap out on MLCC capacitors. I would say it's never okay to cheap out on any capacitor. Uh, you don't know the build quality. You don't know how long they're going to last. Even if there's no safety issue, do you really want to spend the time to do something and have a product die in a year rather than 10 years or something like that? Um, it's just not anything I would ever do. And when you're making your own cap list, always get the exact same capacitance as the original. So if it's 220 microfarad, you have to get 220 microfarad get the same or higher voltage. That's something that every time I say that, there's some know-it-all in the comments that tells me I'm wrong about that. I'm not. It's one of the few things I'm very confident in. If something says like a 220 microfarad 10-volt capacitor, you could use a 10-volt, a 12-volt, a 100-volt, a million-volt. It doesn't matter as long as the capacitance is the same and the voltage is equal to or greater than the original. And for me, I usually, if it's the same size and price, I'll get the higher voltage voltage. Just because, uh, but if it's not the same size, I'll keep the original. And the only other factor left is tolerance, and that's the one thing that I wouldn't say cheap out on, but I wouldn't say you go and you have to go get the best of. So if your original capacitor is 220 microfarad, 10 volt, and 20 percent tolerant. I would get, you know, the same 220 microfarad. I'd probably get 12, 16 or whatever volts higher, and then I would probably also get 20% tolerance. I I think the difference going to 10 or 5% is a huge difference in costs, a huge difference in availability, and I don't think it makes nearly as big of a difference as things like resistors. Whereas those are the opposite. I would get good quality resistors, and I would also get them uh always 1% tolerant unless there's absolutely no other choice. I think the difference in cost between 5% tolerant resistors and 1% is very little to nothing, especially when you're buying them in quantities of however, however many it takes to to do a project, not, you know, you're manufacturing millions of consoles. So I think that's the one that I would definitely do that. I, I have a few people have told me that for audio mods, they've used 0.1% tolerance resistors. I think that's a little over the line, but you know, it won't hurt, but that's the only thing, but that's not cheaping out. That's just not going uh, going crazy on price to buy something you don't need. So respectfully, no, I would never cheap out on capacitors. I would buy good ones every time uh, just because it's one less thing to worry about. Kieran O'Donnell said they have six devices going into a PVM that are connected to two separate three-in, one-out SCART switches. They're manual switches that completely disconnect an input when not selected. They want to know if it's okay if the Y cable combine the output of both switches together as long as only one input across the two switches is ever selected. I don't know if I would chance that Um, you should be safe, but that's just not one of those things that I would take the chance on because at, at the absolute least you'd be sharing grounds, which could potentially add some kind of interference but you could also be putting more of a load even with the console off depending on how the switches are set up depending on what else is active when uh, when you release the switch or anything like that so i don't know i'm not sure i would i would chance that Uh, the, the last part, if you do accidentally leave one switch selected to something and select another on the other switch, is it a case where you could damage a console instantly, or would it be okay if you notice it and deselect it within a couple of seconds should be totally fine. If you just did it in that scenario, like, Oh crap, I did this hit the button. Um, I've let them run longer than that for tests and stuff I've done and uh, I've only killed one console uh, using y cables and it was it was a test that had to be done and I just was able to uh, send it off to somebody who used it for parts anyway but um that that definitely was more than a few seconds that was minutes I believe before that happened so I just I don't know if I would take that chance, especially because there's other solutions out there. I believe retro gaming cables just released a pretty cheap scart switch as well. I think that's five or six in one out I think I have got that sitting around here somewhere I need to review Um, I did just a very quick basic check on it and it was fine it was nothing crazy going on with it I'll do a more in-depth review soon but it seems like a good option I always like the otaku switch I know they've had an issue with shipping with you know all of the stuff going around in the world so I would definitely still recommend them I would just if retro gaming cables has them in stock they'll ship within a day so that that might be the only thing I would recommend over it Uh, but yeah I mean that's just one of those things where if if you're doing that now just to hold you off knowing that you're getting another solution in the future cool but i would not let that be your final solution i would look into anything else pretty much Uh, and also thanks again for the kind words really appreciate it jeffrey pierce wants to know how come their bvm d24 always says 480i even when they have a 240p signal going to it so that's a very easy answer 240p isn't actually a real thing it was a 15 kilohertz signal that was sent in a way that forced CRTs into making it progressive scan, which is how you're able to get a non-flickery image on all of these older consoles. So when your BVM detects it, and PVM and pretty much anything that has a uh, any kind of resolution indicator, it's always going to say 480i simply because CRT doesn't know the difference between either 15 kilohertz signal, 240p or 480i. Same when you send it something like an Atari 2600 or SMS versus uh, the SNES versus like a CPS-2. They all have wildly different resolutions. And in fact, the first two consoles I mentioned, you'll even see a black border around the whole image in most CRTs. They're all wildly different, but they're all 15 kilohertz signals. So your TV is always going to show 480i. So you don't have to worry about any of that at all with a BVM or PVM. The only time you have to worry about that is on consumer grade HD CRTs. Every single one I've tested uh, has a processing chip in it that's similar to flat panels. So when you send it to 40p, it detects a 15 kilohertz signal and automatically tries to deinterlace it and that's when you run into issues like the weird flicker and that's the only scenario in which you would have a problem i've seen hd crt's pass 480i and pass 480p without any problems and with zero lag but i have not seen one pass 240p properly at all they all have some kind of processing chip in there to do that so that's a uh, it's not anything to worry about. I just wanted to give you a bit of background in that. Um, so, you know, the rest of your question, are you not getting a natural 240p signal? Does the BVM not support it? Uh, no, you don't have to worry about any of that. Your D24 is awesome. Uh, you know, don't ever worry about that stuff. It's going to display every resolution you throw at it perfectly from 240p all the way up to 1080i. And probably some weird ones I haven't even tested. Uh, also when connecting a GameCube with a Mark II through a Wii HD retrovision cable, they get a weird sync issue only on the boot up screen showing the GameCube logo. But when they're in Swiss or in any game, it goes away. Any idea what's causing this? No, but I think that's a 480i signal. So maybe it's just something to do maybe it's something to do with the settings. Um it's really, you know, that's something I would kind of look into your Mark two settings and see where all of those are at. Um, I would set all of them to pass through. So, uh, you know, you don't ever convert or deinterlace anything that could be it it could just be a weird thing like it's turning 480i into 480p or something like that so i would just make sure it's set to pass through mode or maybe even test a 480i only game or use swiss to force 480i on a game and if you get that weird issue then you know it's a 480i problem but yeah i would really look into your mark ii and uh and see what settings are going on there maybe that's it But I definitely don't have that issue on any of the BVMs I have with any of the other um, uh, GC video-based HDMI solutions. So, yeah, I I think I got to all of them, but good question. And that's actually something I mentioned in the BKM68X video because I do get that question quite often about 480i. So hopefully that cleared it up the remora is looking for a recommendation for quality xbox 360 component video cables and i would say just pick up the official microsoft ones the last time i checked they were not expensive maybe they went up in price but um, i think you could still pick those up fairly cheap and i think some places even have old stock new that are decently priced so that's definitely what i would recommend also i could totally see a lot of use cases for this um you know component video out going into a tank 5X, either to downscale to a CRT so that you could have a 240p image, or even just doing things like feeding it 480p to add scan lines, um, which I think might be kind of cool if you're playing something like Daytona USA or anything like that. Uh, Or I guess even if you just want to set it to 720p and have it pass it through. That should be fine. that would probably be the least useful as opposed to just using HDMI out. Unless, of course, you have one of the older 360s that doesn't have an HDMI port. But either way, it's a cool scenario and it's certainly something I, I see a need for and I would just grab the original Microsoft cables. Oliver Clare has a pretty elaborate setup involving an RF combiner switch, a composite demodulator, a G-Comp switch, and then dual outputting to both a CRT and a RetroTink 5X, and Oliver wants to know the best way to test lag through all of these. Um, so on the RF side of it, so going RF all the way through to your CRT, that's going to be zero. Um, if you really wanted to double check, I would look up the model number of your RF combiner switch and make sure nothing like a frame buffer is listed in that. But I seriously doubt that would be the case. I could be wrong, you know, it might be worth double checking, but I, I really don't think it's anything like that in RF equipment. So that's gonna be zero. I wouldn't even bother testing. I would just probably check the, the manual of the RF thing. But testing it on the RetroTink 5X flat panel side, I mean, if you wanted a really accurate measurement, I would pick up a time sleuth and a cheap. Digital to analog converter, like the ones I always link to. I'll put the link in the description. But basically, just go through that. Uh, So, time sleuth to converter into the RetroTank 5X and then measure on the top of your TV. And then you'll get a definite lag measurement on what that would be. But the switch isn't going to add anything at all. So, uh, I would even skip the switch and just go directly into the RetroTank 5X. Um, You mentioned other kind of lag tests, like doing a microphone test and using like a, a DSLR I mean, you could do that too if you don't want to buy a time sleuth, but I really think whatever lag is going to be in your setup is simply the RetroTink 5X, which has already been measured, and whatever's on your panel, which probably was already measured by somebody else anyway, so... By no means am I discouraging you from testing lag, I like when people do that, I'm just saying in this setup you might not need to go through the trouble unless you're just curious. So I'll leave a link to um, to the DAX that I use, as well as a link to the video I did where I lag test a bunch of this old equipment, and hopefully that should take care of what you need. Adam W. was wondering if the RetroTINK 5X's new LCD-style grid scan lines work with the Game Boy Interface's custom 360p output mode. I have not tested that myself, so um, I'd kind of have to defer to anybody else that used it. I could swear it did. I thought I I talked to Mike and I thought he mentioned that, but this is probably a middle-of-the-night conversation that I'm not remembering right anyway, so uh, sorry. Normally, I would probably just fire up a console and test, but a lot of my stuff is buried at the moment, so it just would take forever to to find it, and I don't even know if I still have all the parts I need to test all of it. I sent some out to different people to lend them things and stuff like that, so sorry, I'm going to have to defer to other people on this one, but it's a good question. Jonathan Levine said they just pre-ordered the BKM 68X alternative input board, and that means they'll have to bring their A-series BVM back into their retro gaming setup, and they'll want to output to two CRTs instead of one. Is there a cheap splitter for a component video? They already own an Extron System 8 Plus, which only has one output, and at the moment they're not ready to invest in another Switch like the G-Comp or the Crosspoint. So lucky for you, I showed this in the video, those switches on the inside of the 68X alternative. 75 ohm termination on means that you only use the input BNC connectors and you don't need to touch the rest. But if you uh, turn 75 ohm termination off, you could run from whatever your full setup is into those inputs and then just grab a BNC cable to go from the outputs to your other monitor, and that's perfectly safe. Um, depending on the monitor, the age, and the quality, you know, you might get a small quality downgrade into the second monitor, or it might look absolutely identical with no discernible differences whatsoever. You'll just have to give it a try. So I would say just uh, purchase one 4BNC cable from anywhere, Amazon, Monoprice, whatever. Uh, Try to make sure it's a shielded one and connect them that way. And that should be all you need. And for the record, this is not the same as using a Y cable, which I always tell people not to do. Um, To make a very long story short, the circuitry inside these things are designed to do very specifically this. So you don't have to worry about splitting the outputs or anything like that. Um, I, I wouldn't do that In any other scenario other than another RGB monitor, but that's kind of a conversation for another time. Just to answer your question, um, that should be perfect and a fairly cheap solution, and it should certainly hold you off until you decide to get a different kind of switch or anything like that. Richard Dotor Suspedes had two questions. First, is there any device which helps deal with a Pal Sega Saturn overscanning on a Pal CRT via RGB SCART? So something that goes between the Saturn and the TV. They could compensate for it using the TV's service menu, but that just makes things worse for other consoles. They don't have overscanning issues on PS2, Dreamcast, or pretty much anything else. It's just the Saturn. So is there any solution that might help correct it? but not alter other consoles' screen positions. Um, So if it's full overscan and not image shift, you would really need to look into like an Xtron device uh, or something that you could take all of your consoles, run it through this device, and then run the output to your TV. And then, of course, you, you want to double and triple check that the output is the right voltage on the sync line, so you might need even a BNC discard adapter with a 470-ohm resistor on it. But I believe there are some Extron devices that have centering controls and size controls that make it very easy. It's just two dials you know, to or four dials or something to for centering and size. Um, I've used that before. It's been years since I've even plugged them in, so I don't even remember the model numbers. Uh, I know I I probably have them buried somewhere in my storage area. I'm very much looking forward to having access to all this stuff so I could easily answer these questions. But um, yeah, I mean, that could be one thing. If it's just a shift to one side, you could try a different sync type. So if you're using Sync on Composite or Sync on Luma, you could try to sync on C-Sync. But that's not always the fix and that's kind of a very specific scenario so I wouldn't really waste money on another cable unless you weren't happy with yours anyway Um, but that's kind of it's kind of how I would approach that it's pretty rough too because it's like that with brightness as well all of these consoles are supposed to output you know within a measure of brightness that you can't really detect the difference and that's just not the case so um, it's kind of hard to deal with that stuff but Hopefully, finding an external box might do it, and the extrons don't add lag or anything like that either. So I, I would either look at that or kind of just deal with it, try to find a happy medium setting between the Saturn and the rest. And the other question, to help prolong the life of a CRT, is it better to turn it on and off using the button, or should they have it in standby and turn it on or off with the remote? Not sure what's best, having it on standby or having it start up from cold every time. So I still don't really know the answer to that. I've discussed it with a lot of people who mostly say they don't know the the answer to that either. But one thing that I do know for sure is you don't want to consistently change the temperature. So I don't ever want to do something like turn on a CRT, run a test for five minutes and unplug it and then leave it, you know, leave it again for you know, months before I power it on again. So whenever I power on a CRT, I usually let it run for at least 10 minutes or so, um, just so I don't mess with the components that way. Uh, and if I'm not using anything long-term, I always unplug it from the wall or have a, a kill switch on um any kind of power strip or something like that. And that's just for general safety nerd reasons. Like, what if your house gets struck by lightning and it hits right outside of where your power strip is and you left it on? Like, it's not likely scenarios here, by the way, but I just feel like, in my opinion, even if I'm wrong, going up and pulling the plug on something or flipping the switch is worth it to me knowing that there's probably no chance of damage anyway, but, you know, I, why would I not take that three seconds to unplug or, or flip the switch? I could be wrong. That's just my opinion, but that's that's certainly how I view it. Uh, but if it's stuff that you use all the time, that's, you know, that's hit or miss. Like, I have this TV next to me, this BVM D9H, And if I know I'm going to be using it over the course of a couple of days a lot, you know, I'm doing a lot of scope testing, that's what I have hooked up, Um, I will just leave it plugged in and leave it in standby mode, but when I'm done testing I do unplug it because sometimes I can go weeks without turning this thing on. It's probably not weeks, I think I use it a lot more than that, but still at least days, you know, a week could go by. Um, and I just don't know what the right answer is. If, if anybody has solid info and not internet myths with absolutely no fact behind them, uh, please share it. But I think, generally speaking, just the don't heat up and cool off immediately thing, just like with PCs. Uh, I, I think that's the only solid advice I can give you that I, I really feel is is good and fact-based. And the rest is, I don't know, I I, I could just tell you my opinion on that. Jason Guffey said they've been having a blast recently with those widescreen hacks for their childhood games like Super Mario World and Super Metroid, so they're curious what ROM hacks, if any, I would recommend in that vein or in general. They have no idea what's out there on that front. Um, You know, I'm a huge fan of ROM hacks. Many of them are excellent, but I think many more of them are, are people who are just Trying their best at you know learning how to hack games and putting some fun stuff out there, so you have to take the time to to really curate which ones are, are going to work for you. I have a page on the website that I, I left up there that's basically just here's some super Metroid hacks i've used before i'll link that it's a you know it's by no means a comprehensive list it's just a bloggy style you know here's what I've played and here's my thoughts on them so I I would definitely recommend stuff like that you know asking people what ROM hacks they recommend and why Um, like there's some quality of life hacks like for Zelda Link's Awakening I I probably will never play the original again I'll I'll probably only play the quality of life hack version still uh, the Game Boy game although I did really like the Switch version too but you know either one of those are fine but the original cart uh, there's just a few quality of life things that do make it better. So I would kind of look into that and see what's the best for you. Uh, and as far as the widescreen stuff, I would just follow Vitor Valela and see whatever the heck he's been working on. Cause it's usually awesome. Um, Second question, they've also been revisiting some old NES games and either their muscle memory has just gone with age or these games are harder than they remembered. Are there any easier or otherwise noob-friendly games you'd suggest for that system that they could also suggest to friends looking to get started with it? Uh, DuckTales, definitely. I don't know why. Maybe maybe it is nostalgia. I doubt it because I really enjoyed playing Playing and relearning it, but that's the type of game where you could totally have some fun playing it. You know, you pick your level, uh, you just play, you enjoy it. It's you know, it's not hard to beat a level, but you have to play each level and learn it and get good at it in order to beat it fairly easily. And that's not something I normally have time for at all anymore. Just playing the same thing over and over until I master one part and then move on to the next. There was a couple of modern retro-inspired games that that. That was a huge feature that was implemented in it. Feature, gameplay mechanic, whatever you want to call it. I was just annoyed with it. Whereas the last time I went back to play the original DuckTales, it was fun. It was frustrating in a good way. Like when I did that live stream about a voyage, of sorceress vacation, like that was good frustrating. That's the type of motivational frustrating that you want. Not like, why am I wasting my time doing the same boring scene over and over? So that's definitely my go-to when people recommend or want a recommendation of like, what's a fun game I could just start playing, but I could also practice and get good at. And then once you get good at that, then move on to like Mega Man 1, which is not easy by any stretch of the imagination but it's a blast to play uh and of course you know the original super mario brothers and stuff like that but i i would always recommend ducktales at first uh and lastly uh, i guess um jason enjoyed the whole uh beer discussion with uh martin yeah i mean you know i love doing these interviews and i love highlighting the people that create these amazing products but i also like just Talking to them like friends, because Martin is a friend at this point, and uh, even for some of the interviews I've done where I barely knew the person, I always want to make sure that everybody feels uh, it feels as if they were just kind of hanging out in my kitchen, drinking a beer or a water or a coffee or whatever's your poison. Uh, but I just I really want them to feel laid back, so I- I'm glad I could integrate that without too many people getting upset. There's always somebody that has something to say about it, but that that's who I am, so that's fine. I'm okay with it. Ross the Jedi wants to know if anybody has info on installing the NES in-game reset board into a Twin Famicom. Uh, I don't know of any guides out there, but I would check Boardy's GitHub to see if uh, if anybody's installed it in that. Uh, the Circuit Board DE forums are great. You just have to use Google Translate, but I would kind of check those and maybe even NES Dev forums and see. Uh, but if anybody has a good link, that's certainly something to um, Uh, to to put in any one of those places so anybody installing it in a twin Famicom could know as well or if it could even be installed I think there might be in-game reset issues with very specific console revisions or something so I guess that's good info as well Alex S. wanted to follow up from the question from a few weeks ago regarding the Wii they have that freezes at the main menu. They did some more research and found that some call it the Wii's sound of death issue because once it freezes, all you hear is a buzz coming from the speakers. Uh, Other people said it's indicative of something going wrong on the motherboard. So, um... I don't really know if there's a good spot to go on where to troubleshoot stuff like this. I know the bit-built forums consoleize a lot of Wii stuff, so they might have some good information on that. But essentially, that sounds like a parts Wii at this point, um, unless somebody has a very clear fix for that. You know, If it's bad capacitors, one bad chip that you could buy on Digikey, whatever it is, um, you know, I, I would definitely look into it if you had the ability to. Uh, But it looks like um, you were able to pick up a cheap other Wii that seems to work fine. So that's cool. The problem is the new Wii has a heavy cigarette odor. Um, Alex was wondering if I had any wisdom about consoles that have operated in smokers' households. So I don't really have too much to offer. If it weren't the Wii, if it were a Sega Genesis or a Super Nintendo or something easy to take apart, I would say take the whole thing apart do the the console plastic thing where you know I, I basically take off everything metal. I wash it with goo gone and dish detergent, and I uh, scrub it with a soft plastic brush. It's funny every couple of weeks somebody will find that video and go, "You're ruining these consoles. That brush is gonna scratch them." No, it's not. It's a soft bristle brush. <laughs> You're totally fine using it. Uh, but yeah, I would do that, and then I would potentially use some kind of alcohol bath or UV cleaner for the motherboard. I've seen Super Nintendos a lot that have factory flux all over the board, and it's sticky and gross and um, dust sticks to it, so I like to clean those up with a little bit of isopropyl and a soft brush there, and then tap it out, hit it with compressed air, and I usually leave it in direct sunlight for like five minutes or so, not to heat it up or anything, but just so the UV rays will get any of the last bit of isopropyl out. But I don't know if that's going to work as well with a Wii because those are a pain to take apart. Uh, They have a lot of smaller components in there. So I don't know. You might want to just blow it out with compressed air and then maybe leave it in a box with some uh, baking soda or something like that. I'm I'm certainly open to to any tricks anybody has that's listening. But for me personally, um, I would probably take the whole thing apart and scrub it. But the Wii is pretty complicated for that. And lastly, any idea when HD Retrovision will restock the Wii component cables? Uh, I thought it was any day now. Um, now, I know they, they've, they say that about some of their other cables, but uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's any moment now, so I would just check Castlevania games, um, and I'll leave a link in the description just in case. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As and you want to ask a question, just ask wherever it is that you support on the newest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post, and I also just kind of like scrolling through them and reading them in order like that. It's a lot of fun doing it that way. So any question, wherever it is that you support, pick the newest Q&A post and post it there. Uh, And of course, and as always, thank you so much to everybody who supports, because none of the things I'm a part of could happen without your support. So thank you all so much and i'll see you next week